Welcome to the Parenting Well Podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you are listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, and credible information, tools, and strategies. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Jonathan Mooney. Jonathan is an award-winning writer, entrepreneur, and activist. Jonathan didn't learn to read until he was 12 years old. His new book is called Normal Sucks, How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines. As a neurodiverse writer, advocate, and father, Jonathan shares a confessional and often hilarious story about his life, offering the radical message that we should stop trying to fix people and start empowering them to succeed. It's wonderful to have you here and sharing today. Yes, I'd like to be a part of it. I know, uh, I know we got something coming up in October, and uh, it was long overdue. But I'm excited to, to, uh, to continue to support you all and, uh, and uh, support the parents out there and teachers doing good work. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to meet you and, and support all the good work you're doing. So, so welcome. Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast. I just finished your book this morning, and I loved it. One of the things that I really enjoyed about it was how open and honest you were about your own childhood, the family you came from, the experiences you went through, and how that really shaped what you're doing today. So I wondered if you could just start by sharing with the audience, like, what kind of inspired you to do the kind of work that you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, look, I've I've spent uh, 20 years as a as an advocate for um, folks with atypical brains and bodies, specifically, and then more broadly as an advocate to evolve learning and uh, evolve the institutions that impact us, whether that be school, work, and community. Uh, and and I'm celebrating my my 20th anniversary of doing this work actually uh, this month. Um, uh, my my first book was published 20 20 years ago, uh, pretty much pretty much right now. Um, and so what got me engaged in that work, uh, as the saying goes, you know, all, all politics are personal. <laughs> and so all of my work uh, as an advocate and uh, writer, uh, but advocate first and foremost, really came from from my own personal experience of of uh, being marginalized, uh, misunderstood, uh, one could even say uh, discriminated against because of having an atypical brain that didn't fit uh, what we uh, as a culture have, has decided to call arbitrarily, by the way, normal. Um, and so all my work sort of stems from being that kid in the hallway, chilling with the janitor because I couldn't sit still, you know, being the kid hiding in the bathroom uh, because I was terrified to read out loud. Uh, all of that work comes from that, that personal experience. Yeah. And I, I also was struck by, by some of your sharing about your parents and the advocacy work your mom does. And I'm a big follower of resiliency research and what it is that makes us resilient. And I couldn't help but think that in some ways the experiences that you had with your family and some of the choices that your parents and, and your mom's choice to, to run a nonprofit and be an advocate herself had some impact on you. And I know you've talked about other people throughout the book that, I think we could say contributed to your resilience, your ability to kind of push forward and challenge the social norm. Absolutely. I mean, what the, the research is pretty clear. It, it, it takes a, 
a handful of, of uh, people believing in you, caring about you, building a relationship with you when you're going through a hard time, whatever that hard time may be, whether it be analogous to mine around learning, whether it be uh, economic, uh, which my family uh, certainly uh, uh, persevered through and experienced, takes a handful of folks in your corner, you know, and that's one of the things I'm most optimistic about uh, in the sense that, you know, we get caught up sometimes on, we got to find the new pedagogy. We got to, we got to find, you know, the, the magic technology to, to, to help people move forward, you know, but it's really people that matter most. And so as you rightfully noted, I had many people in, in my corner, but the first was, was my mom, you know, and my mom came from a diverse neurological uh, meaning different brain uh, and also socioeconomic and one could say even political background. Uh, my mom struggled in school. My mom had my brother when she was a teenager uh, and my two sisters uh, quickly thereafter was a single mom on public assistance known at the time as welfare. Uh, never went to college and uh, she was often, you know, dismissed and, and uh, pushed to the side and, and uh, she persevered. She persevered in her own life, as you rightfully noted, to go off to run for uh, the last 43 years, actually, a, a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. in Los Angeles that focuses on social justice, inclusion, and, uh, and empowerment. Uh, but she also persevered in my journey. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. She's quite a character. You know, she's got a very mm-hmm. high-pitched, squeaky voice like Minnie Mouse, and she she curses like a truck driver. <laughs> so if you were a principal or a teacher kind of doing wrong by her son, you did not want uh, cursing Minnie Mouse in your <laughs> office, you know, <laughs> but that's where, yeah. that's where she was, you know, uh, she was fighting for my right to be different. You know, I didn't know that at the time. She didn't even have that language at the time, but she really was uh, fighting for this idea that it wasn't the kid who should change, but the environment around the kid, that should change. Uh, and that, that was, and, and frankly, uh, still is, a, a very uh, radical thing to say, and, and perhaps even more so a radical thing to uh, put into action and to fight for. But that, uh, in my own journey, made all the difference. Yeah, and that says something to what parents can do when they have a child uh, where they just don't fit in and they're struggling and they need support and help for parents that are really starting to embrace that journey. Because I know with Parent Engagement Network, uh, one of our tenets really of the work we do is is to empower parents. And, and the way we frame that is to say that by going into any environment where your child is struggling and advocating for them, you're teaching them to advocate for themselves because they see that, they see that model and they understand that they can advocate for themselves. And that seems like something that very clearly you were able to do. Well, look, I, I don't, I don't read well to this day. <laughs> you know, I, I, I uh, have the phonetic awareness of somebody in seventh grade. You know, I confuse words that look alike, uh, who and how, horse and house. You know, when I went to college, I thought uh, my university offered a course in orgasmic chemistry. Uh, imagine, imagine how disappointed I was on the first day of that <laughs> class. But, uh, but the thing I can do well is advocate for myself. And, and that came directly from uh, my mom being a, a role model uh, of, of advocacy, yes. But also uh, a, a messenger of uh, the idea that I wasn't broken, I wasn't the problem, and what happened to me was wrong. 
you know, not a tragedy, but really a crime. You know, my mom emerged mm. uh, in her own life and continues within the sort of civil rights, social justice movement. She was good friends back, back in the day with all the, <laughs> the Black Panthers in mm -hmm. Oakland. That's where she grew up. And so she really came at this from the perspective of, of inclusion and diversity, not pathology. And subsequently, if, if I was and, and, and if anyone was being left behind because of a, a difference, that was a social injustice that one should fight against. One should fight against mm -hmm. in their own life, right, as she did for me, as I did for myself. But ultimately, it's something that we together collectively should fight against as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and I appreciated also that you talked about differences on a pretty broad spectrum. You know, the history that you shared about how we talk about what's normal and everything from socioeconomic status, body image, um, even even what we see kids throwing up on on um, Facebooks and Instagrams and you know all the, all the TikToks, different things that are coming out. This this idea that there is a normal brain, a normal body, a normal way to be. Um, and I appreciated the pushback against that as a broad concept. That this is something people deal with. This level of being put aside or discriminated against for not fitting some picture that they're supposed to fit. So I think it's something people can really relate to no matter where they are. Uh, it's, a, it's a universal, you know, hu human struggle. Um, you know, a, a, a social philosopher I admire named Michel Foucault said, the judges of normality are ever present everywhere. And all of us are judged by their jurisprudence. Whether or not mm. you are judged to the extreme like myself, of being diagnosed. I mean, I had a file that literally said words like, like abnormal disorder, <laughs> dysfunction, et cetera, or whether or not you're a young person looking at these curated uh, fictional, because they are images that are on social media. Um, we set a norm. Uh, we're told to uh, be that norm. But the reality is we all know whoever took a statistics class that a norm or a mean or medium or average by definition, is a statistical fiction. It's not something you can ever become, but it's a, a message we get that we should strive to be it. And I think that that has, you know, dramatic consequences in the lives of the so-called abnormal. And again, these are clinical terms that are used to describe human beings to this day. One of the most common courses at any American university is abnormal psychology, in which we pathologize a whole continuum of differences and call them sick. But it's something that we all navigate every, every day. Uh, and the reality is, and this is really an insight, I think, from multiple social movements, but, but the disability rights movement in particular, I think, has not been given enough credit for its broad social message that we are all temporarily abled brains and bodies, that having limitations is a natural, one could say, essential part of the human experience, mm -hmm. and that we have to start to build social institutions and a broader cultural, cultural narrative that is grounded not in the myth of normalcy, but the reality of human difference. Yeah, and I think that, that our role as an as a important person in a young person's life is to help them see what it is that makes them special. I, I loved the story that you told about the little boy who had been hiding under his bed, I believe, every day and then one day got up and was ready to go to school and it was all because of a conversation that had happened in your the organization you started eye to eye 
um, where you were mentoring other other kids in elementary school who were struggling. Um, and just that feeling of, I'm accepted, it's okay, I can go to school. It's evidence that as a parent or a person in a young kid's life, sometimes it's really one statement or something that you might think is just a little thing that can make the biggest difference for a kid. It's the, it's the power of people. Uh, it's the power of community. And it's the uh, opportunity that we have in community to challenge these social messages about which humans are valuable and which humans aren't. Uh, and the anecdote story that you are alluding to did come from uh, an organization that I co-founded in college at, at Brown University called Eye to Eye, which is now a national organization. I believe there's, uh, 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 there has been certainly, but there may still be currently uh, a chapter of Eye to Eye based out of uh, uh, the University of Colorado Boulder in your backyard. And mm. it, it had a pretty, uh, pretty straightforward mission. The goal was to uh, not be a t- uh, tutoring or 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 uh, remediation program, but to be a mentoring program to to give young people an experience of hope to match them with somebody like them who who was thriving in life. And uh, the first time we convened, again, well over twenty years ago at this point, uh, there was five of us, five Brown University students, five third graders. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> you know, we just sort of paired <laughs> off and uh, shared our stories. And uh, one group was a, uh, a young man, a Brown University student named Kent Roberts. He was paired with a third grader named Philip. Philip was a hurting kid struggling with anxiety, depression, and what you alluded to, school phobia. He would not go to school. And uh, about halfway through the mentoring session, I overheard Kent, the Brown University student, say to Philip, you have to know, Philip, that normal people suck. And, and I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not sure that's what we should be saying in our mentoring program, but you know what? It actually was, on second thought, exactly what we should be saying in our mentoring program. So fast forward, you know, the next day I'm called to the principal's office uh, to discuss what happened, and uh, Philip's grandmother is at the principal's office, and she tells me that the day after Eye to Eye, that morning, uh, her grandson, Philip, was up early, waiting in the car, ready to go to school. And it was all about Kent, you know, building a relationship. But I think even more importantly, it was about challenging that uh, notion of normal that looms over us and making it the problem opposed to the person with a difference. And I think that was a, a, a revolution in, in that young person's life. But to be frank with you, it was also a revolution in my life because, you know, my journey to higher education, to, to adulthood, was at times all about trying to be normal, you know, and mm-hmm. trying to appropriate uh, the codes of normal and be the best normal I can be. So that moment in time was a big deal for, for Philip, but it was also a big deal for me. And it is a reminder about the power we all have to to elevate another person uh, with our day-to-day language, um, to put them on a different path, to believe in them and help them see themselves differently. That's something we all can do every day with our kids, with our spouses, with our partners, with our extended family, with the people we work with. That's, that's something each and every one of us can do and, frankly, uh, should do. You know, a lot of people who, who may pick up your book or be listening to this podcast you know, are, are probably somewhere on the spectrum of, of facing the challenges that, um, that a person can face when they don't fit in with the so-called normal. What, what advice would you have for a parent 
who's watching their child suffer, you know, where do they start to advocate for and, and help their child succeed in that environment? Well, well, first of all, uh, I don't want to take it uh, for granted or uh, assume. We all need to start as thinking of ourselves as advocates for our children's rights, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and that's a broad, that's broad, uh, broadly mm-hmm. defined, whether or not uh, somebody on the other side of this is, is advocating for a young folk person with a learning difference, attentional difference, physical difference, a gifted education, or a young person that's, you know, just sort of fits in the middle of the bell curve. We should be as parents thinking of ourselves as advocating for their rights. And, and I think that that takes a, a, a new uh, level of, of, of relevance and, and depth to it, you know, given the state of the world around, around uh, distance learning. I, I have to say, I think children and children's well-being uh, has not been top of the policymaking uh, point of view. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we as a country historically uh, dramatically underinvest in young people, right? And that's starting prenatal, uh, and that goes all the way through, you know, higher education, which is the number one form of debt that young people launch their life with. So I think we need to yeah. think about ourselves as advocates for our kids. Uh, for their rights to learn. We do have a human right to learn. Uh, and then specifically in my case, or the case of a listener, somebody whose child is struggling, their right to learn differently. And, and that's really important, you know, like that, that, that phrasing, meaning like we can advocate for services and a lot of young folks who struggle don't get the services they need and we should advocate for that. You know, if you read like I do, you probably need some extra reading assistance, right? That's a service that we should fight for. But perhaps more importantly, we should be advocating for students' rights for accommodation. And accommodations is a little bit different than services, right? Services is something a student experiences to remediate a problem inside of themselves. It has a role. It has a place. Absolutely. But accommodations, which stems from the Americans with Disabilities Act, we're celebrating the 30th year of that piece of social Mm -hmm. justice legislation this year. Uh, Accommodation is all about not changing the person, but changing the context around the person. So in my life, it wasn't the reading service that made all the difference. It was access to books on tape. That's what it was Mm -hmm. back in my day. You know, the thing was so big, you had Mm -hmm. to put it in a backpack and plug it into a generator, (laughs) you know, but now we got speech to text, text to speech uh, that is pervasive in people's pockets every day on their phone. So that notion of being an advocate first for somebody's right to learn in a broader macro public policy perspective, second for services that they're being denied under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, and then ultimately advocates for, hey, how do you change teacher, administrator, principal, the environment around my kid. It's your responsibility, not mine and not my kid's responsibility mm-hmm. to fit the current system. You know, I believe fundamentally that we try to make the, the round peg fit the square hole, you know, and what mm-hmm. we need to do is change the context around kids through accommodations and ultimately universal design. So start your journey, the you out there listening right now, with that advocacy focus and take inspiration from cursing Minnie Mouse and, and frankly, when appropriate, <laughs> take some of her F-bombs, you know, because they work mm-hmm. every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, great advice for people. Can't agree with you more that it, it takes you being strong and standing up for your kiddo when things are tough. What else would you recommend for parents in terms of social interactions, you know, outside of the school system? So how to support your kid in, in flourishing in life like socially. I, you were good at soccer and that helped you to have something else outside of what you were dealing with that you could be around a social group and feel like you fit in. What kind of things would you recommend to parents when it comes to the social world that they live in? Focus on what kids can do and not what they can't do outside mm. of school. Frankly, my message to educators, broadly defined, is focus on what kids can do, not what they can't do in school. But I know that we mm -hmm. don't have control over that. So the things that we have control over, invest in the interests, the passions, and the talent. You know, I, that's a very personal mm -hmm. thing for me, you know. And I say that because if you struggle in school, the system, for the most part, is set up, again, to make the round peg fit the square hole, you know. It's about changing the kid. And so subsequently, you find yourself, if you're like me, constantly being fixed, Right fixed in school, and then there's a pervasive pressure for parents to fix outside of school. You know, the tutoring and the remediation classes and the phonics camps, etc. And that's well-intentioned, meaning I know folks aren't doing that because to be malicious, they're doing it because the message we get is that to be successful, you got to fit in. But the problem is, when all we do is fix a kid in and out of school, the message the kid gets is that they're broken, right? And nobody lives mm -hmm. a, a meaningful life feeling broken. But perhaps more importantly, we never help them organize a sense of self uh, and subsequently community, and this is to your question, around their interests and their talents. And so for me, it was a revolution when, when my mom decided to invest in my interests opposed to remediating my problems, you know? And I remember this day like it was yesterday, you know? I, I, I struggled with spelling, and of course, when I was in school, every Friday was spelling test day, you know? Well, what a wonderful way to end the week, right? <laughs> like, <it was> awesome. <laughs> and so every day leading up to spelling test day was remediation day, you know? We would do the flashcards, we'd draw the words in the sand, we'd build the words with blocks. I would do interpretive dance to get the words in, you know. And every Friday, I would fail this test. But now there's one Friday. You know, there's one Friday my mom uh, pulled me from school. Uh, we ditched school, and we went to the zoo. And every Friday, henceforth, because the school would not capitulate on the importance of spelling, we did something I was interested in. You know, we went to the zoo because I loved animals. We went to a contractor site, friend of the family, because I love building things. You know, in school, I was getting detention for making jokes. So my mom took me to improv class and opposed to detention, <laughs> I got applause. So that fundamental paradigm shift of invest in what is right builds a, a, a better sense of self, frankly, puts people on a path to a more successful adult life because people who thrive in life are doing something they care about. But to your question, yeah. it builds a community around young people that's interest based. So whatever that interest is, you know, invest in it. Doesn't matter whether you think it's going to lead to a job. Doesn't matter whether some people think it's not a good thing. If it's skateboarding or horses or building or comedy, every kid has something right with them. Every young person has something they're interested in. And our obligation, I think as a society, but certainly as parents, is to invest and scale that.
And that really speaks to paying attention to your child, being curious, you know, who doesn't love it when somebody is curiously interested in who you are as a person and what matters most to you. That was actually one of my favorite quotes from your book was where you said, um, challenge normality as a prerequisite to personhood, self-worth and human dignity, that, that really it is about paying attention and looking to what is it that makes this person a special person in the world. Yeah, it's an ethical obligation, you know, and I, and I use the term ethics in, in the sense of, 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 you know, the origin of the term in, in, in ancient Greek, which is to a way to live, you know, a path to a good life. And one of our ethical obligations is to meet people where they are, not where we think they should be, and to celebrate them for who they are, not who we think they should be. And that does require us to uh, reject normality because that notion of normal uh, has been used over uh, uh, centuries to disqualify human beings. And and not only Mm -hmm. has it been used in the abstract to disqualify human beings, but it's been used to exterminate human beings. Uh, Mm -hmm. We forget uh, as a culture that the first group to be systemically targeted for elimination by the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, the first group before Roma, before folks with atypical sexualities and before Jews, the first group were folks with disabilities in a little known uh, movement piece of public policy called Operation T4. And so that's sort of ground zero of human disqualification. Do do you fit the norm in body and brain? Uh, And there's obviously intersections and tributaries around racism, sexism, homophobism, homophobic activity, all embedded in that notion, right? So we have to push back on that and, and see people for who they are, pay attention to who they are. And also, if it's a mom or dad or caregiver or teacher listening now, we also have to reject the lens that we're given of how to see our kid. And I mean that very, very practically. You know, I remember when uh, I was tested, right, for, for having problems in school. And I remember the report that came back. And that report was a deficit dump. It was Jonathan can't sit still. He has attention deficit activity disorder. He has language processing disorder. He has executive functioning problems. And, and that gets embedded in our minds, you know? And so mm-hmm. it requires us to, to resist that lens, to not give up our authority to somebody because they have a PhD, and to see our kids, our children, our loved ones, our, our colleagues, everyone around us uh, for who they are, not who we think they should be. One of the things that came to my mind is just how much pressure parents are put under to do it right, so to speak. Society tends to look to the parent if something is going on with the child. The conversation you had in your book about fear and shame, you know, that's one we have a lot with parents because there's so much fear and shame around parenting. Frankly, I think in, in most situations, I don't know that I know a family that hasn't at some point dealt with fear and shame around some issue. And so I think it's just a really powerful thing to say that, that we can set that aside and we can really look to, um, it isn't about that. It's really about being a human being. And, and it requires us to have a different cultural definition of success, you know, because I think that fear and shame, and I'm, I'm the father of three kids, so I, I feel it all the time. And, and I think many mm-hmm. uh, parents are feeling it even more because the obligation in communities or districts that are doing distance learning, as, as I'm right now, you'll probably hear my kids yelling in the background in a minute, you know, like <laughs> we're on full-time distance learning and the obligation is, is firmly on the family. 
you know, like we got to just be real about that. You know, we can't um, act like this is not a burden on families, on the career progression of women, which we know has been of mothers that has been dramatically in- impacted by uh, distance learning initiatives, uh, et cetera. Now, I understand the origin of those, but we also need to understand the consequences of that public policy and to be thoughtful about how we move forward and mitigate some of that fear and shame that has been accelerated on parents. Uh, and this notion of, of fear and shame does stem not just from current circumstances, but also from what parents are told is the goalpost, you know. The goalpost mm-hmm. is college. It's college or die, right? <laughs> like, we, like, we've literally had a, a public narrative around that since a report done uh, called Nation at Risk in the late 80s. Uh, and it was a report done uh, by the Department of Education that essentially showed that uh, American students were falling behind uh, so-called peers in, in other countries. And, and that led to a public policy of college or die. You, you don't go to college, you're a failure. Uh, and that, that's not my point of view, that's the cultural point of view. And so we're all trying to shove folks into that box. And, and I think that that's wrong. You know, we define success by monetary achievement uh, opposed to being in happiness. And so it takes courage to have a bigger definition of success uh, to meet your child where they're at and to uh, have more metrics than GPA and college attendance that we're using to judge a successful life. Hey, I'll tell you some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life went to Harvard Law School, you know, and <laughs> like that is not a metric of success. And, you know, we need that both as parents, that challenging of success. And, and there's, a, there's a great uh, organization out of Stanford uh, Ed School called Challenge Success uh, run by two amazing uh, academic activists, mentors, uh, visionaries in the field. But that is also a ecological imperative. Because, you know, our notion of what it means to live a good life has gotten me, at least here in California, a year-round fire season, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's gotten us into a, yeah. uh, a relentless, rapacious consumer society that, that, ain't, that isn't working, you know, and, and is not sustainable any longer. So here we have sort of, I love like big little, you know, we got, we got little, and I know it's not little for people living it, of us doing our thing day to day, challenging success for our kids that leads to a better life for them. But ultimately, if we all do that together, it leads for a better life for all of us. As we kind of start to wrap up here, we've talked a lot about what you feel parents need to do to support and stand up for their child. Is there anything else that you want to leave parents with from our conversation today? Like my journey was facilitated uh, by my mom, as we've already talked about. But you know what? My my journey was also facilitated by my father. And um, that's a paradox because my father was, you know, the guy telling me to sit still at the dinner table, the guy telling me, hey, what's your problem? You know, the guy saying you're going to be a high school dropout. That, that was my father in my life. Now, I've learned over the years that that shame, there's the word again, that he made me feel was coming from shame he felt about himself. You know, my father, uh, on one hand, on paper, better than normal. Went to college, successful uh, law school career, prominent attorney. But on the other hand of that, my father was told by his family, his community, his school, what's your problem? Sit down, be normal. You know, my father literally, and <laughs> not a joke, my dad uh, had a, a nun in his Catholic school named Sister Payne. Okay? Uh, <laughs> she, 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 she knew her way around a ruler, you know, like, uh, and, and so he was shamed for his differences and he replicated that pattern with me. 
But I'll tell you, he had the courage to break that pattern. And I remember that day like, like it was yesterday, you know. Uh, I left school um, for a time in sixth grade, pretty much majority of sixth grade. I left, dropped out, you could say. Uh, I had a plan for suicide. It was literally the worst time of my journey. And uh, right around when I was having this really uh, hard time around suicide ideation, uh, my father took me to a baseball game. It's a very, very famous baseball game for folks who follow baseball. It's the 88 World Series, Oakland A's, uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. And what makes it famous is, is a, a walk-off home run in the ninth inning by a guy named Kirk Gibson. I don't remember any of that. <laughs> what I remember <laughs> was afterwards, me and my dad in the parking lot, waiting for the traffic to go away so we could drive home. And I remember being terrified that my father was going to lecture me. You know, I'd left school, I was struggling in school, and I, I, I was terrified that he was going to lecture at me. And he was dead silent for a long time. And then he turned to me and he said, look, I love you regardless of how you do in school. I love you for who you are. And that was, that was it, you know, like that, that, that sort of like uh, the feeling of shame, plan for self-harm uh, went away for a long time. And so that's all, that's in our control, you know, like it doesn't take a lot, but what he did was everything, you know, it doesn't take um, all the uh, fancy programs and technology that sometimes we think it does. It takes people who believe in you, who care about you, mm. not for who you should be, but for who you are. I appreciate you sharing that story and, um, and everything that you've shared through your book and through this podcast. It's uh as you said in the beginning, it's it's a personal journey, and thank you so much for for being on the podcast today. We look forward to having you join us in October um, and sharing with our whole community. It's an honor to speak with you and to be able to have you come and present for us and share about your book, Normal Sucks, for people who are listening. Uh, if you have not picked this book up, it's amazing and it's worth a read. So thanks again for being here with us. Oh, hey, uh, thank you, obviously, for the opportunity to be a part of, of your uh, podcast as well as the convening coming up. But more importantly, thank you for uh, the work that you uh, and everyone associated with Penn does because this is an all hands on deck moment. Uh, what is the future of learning? Uh, what is uh, the future of how we raise young folks? How do we define success? And it's an all hands on deck crisis moment. And you all out there empowering parents to believe in themselves, their voice, to believe in their children. Uh, that's a a contribution uh, to building a better future for all of us. So thanks so much for letting me be a part of it. We hope that today's conversation has added to your parenting well and that the information and insights shared will help you in raising healthy, happy kids. If you're interested in learning more about Penn or making a donation, you can find us at www.penbv.org. It was an honor to have you join us, and until next time, happy parenting.